1: With the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, John Micklethwaite of Bloomberg News, the editor-in-chief, sitting down with the British leader. Take a listen.
2: China is a gigantic part of our economic life and, and, and will be for a for a long time, for, for our lifetimes. But that does not mean that we should be uh, naive in the way that we look at our... Um, our critical national infrastructure. The way we look at uh, you mentioned nuclear uh, power. You, you mentioned five uh, G technology. Uh, those are all legitimate concerns that any government, m- many many other governments around the world have. But I, I am. I, I want to be. I've said this many times. It's worth repeating. I am no Sinophobe, Very far from it. I think. Do you that- think
3: you're the last sinophile in the cabinet? No,
2: I, I expect there are lots of. Uh, look, China is would a you, great country and civilization. What about wind power. Would you let them buy, buy offshore wind power? That's infrastructure. I think, I think you'd have to Railways. look at you'd have to look at, uh, to look at what was are defining as uh, strategic or, or critical. But I certainly think that having a you know our, our trading relationship. With China, if you look at it, it's it's, in spite of all the difficulties, in spite of you know all the sort of angry conversations about, or or the difficult conversations about the Dalai Lama or or Hong Kong or or the Uyghurs, and where, where we will continue to stick to our points, right? That we will continue to stick to our to our views. Uh, but actually, trade with China has continued to expand for a very long time. And I think probably will continue to expand, as I say, for for the rest of our lives. That doesn't mean that we should be, um, you know, we should be also we should be cautious about how we handle our, our CNI and about how we handle uh, FDI from China into some of our sensitive can I, can industries. And that's that? why we brought in some of the legislation that we have.
0: The Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, getting to gre- greet those at COP26 in Glasgow. Joining us now, the Editor-in-Chief of Bloomberg News, John Micklethwaite. I put on a new shirt and sat up straight today for this discussion. John, there will be Johnson. Great improvement. Thank you. There will be Johnson, <laughs> there will be Scotland, and there will also be the hope for a future perfect. Your wonderful book of too many years ago, 2003, we need a redo, John. And I want to talk at the back end of that book about the backlash. You mentioned the backlash of globalization. What's going to be the backlash of climate change that the prime minister and others face at Glasgow?
3: I think that's actually quite a good comparison, in fact. I think if you look at the issue in Britain of heat heat pumps, which is from a green point of view, people are trying to put in much more kind of low energy heat pumps into their houses. And everyone thinks that's wonderful and green. But what's happening is consumers who are generally quite keen on green things are saying, no, God, these are going to cost, it could cost $5,000. They could cost huge amounts of money. And I think that what is happening with greenery is a little bit similar to globalization. Mm -hmm. It's something that everyone generally thinks is a good idea. And remember, there was an era where people thought that generally opening up economies were great and everyone approved of globalization until it happened to them everyone approves of fighting climate change until suddenly it means the price of petrol or gas as you mistakenly call it rises um, that's what that's where it hurts It's when the heating for your house hurts it's where things that really affect people particularly and Johnson is kind of caught in the middle of that as indeed uh, you know you can look at sure. them, what's happening with the Democrats in Congress
0: do the elites know that at this uh, cop 26 they have to sell to a public that's hugely skeptical?
3: I think, well, that one example of the elites is um, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth. And she, she was caught on, caught on uh, a recorder the other day um, talking about the fact that nobody was coming and that it all looked very difficult. Um, so I think some people are aware of that, but I think in general, no. I think that it's one of those areas where there is a divide that opens up. And, and you look around the world, every time it's come up, it's always sort of hit the elites harder. You might remember that example a bit ago where Macron suddenly re- you know, changed the speed limits on various roads, in part for kind of green reasons, and you suddenly end up with the gilet jaune. You, 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 there's few things that make people more annoyed than something directly hitting part of their pocketbook. You look around parts of America as well and the debates now about what happens with infrastructure bills and yeah. so on. So Need I do think it's, I think it's a worrying area from the point of view of a kind of global elite view.
4: Meanwhile, they are hosting COP26 at a time when there's a lot of questions around how much to open your borders. It's been an issue of serious uh, disagreement and frankly, a lot of consternation. However, at this moment in time, UK's uh, hospitalization and death rate for uh, co- from COVID has actually been going up after being celebrated as one of the big winners from the whole pandemic. How did he respond to that?
3: Well, it's interesting. You, you look at the numbers for covid you know, sufferers, people who've caught COVID, those have been rising very rapidly in Britain. You're right, the hospitalisation and death rates have gone up, but so far at least, at least as far as you can see, the sort of vaccine protection thing is sort of holding. The, the, the current levels, I think it's around 40,000 a day, people are catching it. You would expect to see many more people dying the, in the rather gruesome way in which this works. And it doesn't seem to be happening because it's, it's really ripping through... Especially young people, everyone who's got schools, people we're working with here, you know, they—they've got people are stuck at home because their children have suddenly got it, and so there is there's a degree of that, but there is also the sort of general sense that that back to what you said earlier, these things to do with opening up economies, people being there, um, they are taking in this in COVID, you know if that. Johnson is going a little bit back to his more liberal roots. In that interview, I talk about the fact that we're in Margaret Thatcher's study. There's a picture of her glowering down on us and a copy of Hayek's Road to Serfdom, a key part of the Tom Keen book list, staring down at us. that, That was the culture from which Boris Johnson came. And he still has some quite strong libertarian instincts at the same time as that he is... By any measure, increasing the size of government fairly formidably. He blames that on Covid. And he's also trying to sort of, I suppose, do a version of industrial
1: policy to push the British economy, especially towards the north, but towards manufacturing, towards things like that. The football stadiums are full again, John. The important question, sir were you at leicester manchester united last weekend no i very very sadly
3: um i i I miss that my life is happy because i saw brendan rogers in a restaurant did you none of this will mean anything to people like um, tom Tom knows (laughs) tom
1: knows john you know tom knows john thank you sir great work as always john micklethwaite there bloomberg news editor-in-chief sitting down with the prime minister in the uk tom
5: I'm delighted to be here at the Science Museum, where we also just heard from the Prime Minister doing a big speech on innovation, and he wants to attract the big bucks around the world. One person who was in the room, and who I believe also had dinner with the Prime Minister yesterday, is David Solomon. He's the Chief Executive of Goldman Sachs. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a while since we saw you in London.
6: It's, it's been a while since I've been in London. I'm thrilled to be back in London. Um, it's really been since March 2020. So um, it's good and to be back. It's good, it's good to be back, and it's good to be spending time with people.
5: And, and the pitch from the U.K. government is come here, invest, be green, and you know, invest some more. Have they been persuasive? What has the government been able to tell executives? Well,
6: I, I, you know, I think they have a good pitch, but as you know, we've been very, very committed to the U.K. for a long time. We have 6,500 uh, people here in the U.K., and in fact, even you know, pre-pandemic, going back to 2018, we built a new building, uh, here, Plumtree Court, which is a billion-dollar commitment, we've been growing up, uh, you know, up uh, also in Birmingham, where we now have expanded our presence in the UK. So we've seen the UK as a tremendous opportunity for us to have a significant outpost, serve our clients, you know, both here and also provide resources across the continent.
5: Has that changed at all because of Brexit? We have the energy crisis, there's a lack of drivers. Is there anything that you need to ask authorities to do better or that your clients want the UK to do better? Well,
6: I I think we're at a moment in time where we're coming out of the pandemic and there are a handful of things going on. I think all over the world, There are labor issues that are really a reflection of this transition out of the pandemic. There are supply chain issues. Uh, Some of this stuff is transitory. There are some secular trends that we have to watch closely. Um, but I think we're adjusting and, 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 and dealing with it as anybody else is. And I, you know, I think leaders here are thinking about it the same way leaders are around the world.
5: When you look at the UK and, of course, some of these green investments that the UK and the City of London particularly has been really trying to pitch, you've been extremely involved in carbon offsetting. Can London really spearhead that movement?
6: Well, I think it's important that governments around the world partner with the private sector to try to get capital directed toward innovation, in a way that we can accelerate the climate transition. And I, you know, I want to emphasize it's clearly a transition. Um, we need thoughtful policy. In my opinion, we need to put a price on carbon. Um, and I think this is something that's very important. There's an enormous premium for certain green technologies. We can invest in technology that can collapse that premium and allow us to deliver a much more sustainable future. But this is something that's going to take some time, and I think it requires both good public policy from from our governments and then active involvement from the private sector. We're trying to do our part. I think you know we've made a big pledge towards $750 billion of sustainable financing, investment, advisory services. We're working toward that. And we try to spend a lot of time with our clients thinking about how we can support them in their individual transitions. And so this is getting a lot of attention, as you would expect it should.
5: I mean, there's also quite a lot of regulation going ahead, and we've heard yesterday, for example, about ESG derivatives. Exactly, you know, where does that end? And can, can London as a capital be the green finance capital of Europe and the world? Well, I,
6: I, I think there's a real, you know, we heard very, very clearly from the prime minister, a real sense of trying to spur on in this economy here an opportunity to create less regulatory structure and therefore more incentives to spur more of that investment. And there's a great center of excellent investment here, certainly around the vaccines. There was a bunch that happened uh, here in the UK. And so, you know, I'm optimistic the UK will play a part. But when you think broadly about these issues, this is a global issue and particularly in the developing world, you know, we in the developed parts of the world are gonna to have to you know, help to bring the world along and get capital focused on technologies that can move this transition over time. And it's really, it's not just here or there, it's everywhere.
5: Um, talk to me about China. So we had exciting news from Goldman Sachs, uh, I think in the last couple of days. How committed are you to China or how wary are you of things changing quite quickly given some of the economic policies put in place by the president?
6: Sure, we, we take a very long-term view um, and we take this view you know, rooted largely in the fact that we have many, many clients that have been doing business in China for a long time. They want our support and our involvement. We're extremely pleased that after a long period of time, 17 years since we started our joint venture, that we actually now have ownership and control of our joint venture in China. So we're thankful for that. Uh, We have a long-term plan to continue to grow in China. We've recently announced a wealth management joint venture there. There's no question that the bilateral relationship between the U.S. and China is complex, and it's going to continue to evolve. We're watching it closely, but with a long-term lens, China is an important part of the global economy. Goldman Sachs operates as a global player with businesses around the world that are participating in global growth. And so we think in the long term, that presence there will be very important for us.
5: Is it riskier being alone, or is it safer being in a joint venture? Like, what does it mean in terms of regulatory risks? Well,
6: I... I I think there are always regulatory risks um, in all markets, and I think that you know, we've shown an ability to adapt to regulatory change and adapt our business appropriately to the degree there are regulatory challenges will deal with them. The, the big reason that we like controlling our joint venture is when we didn't own our joint venture, we owned 33% of our business in China. Every dollar of investment we made, we only own 33 cents of it. So, this allows us to continue to invest for the long term in growing our franchise and our business and serving our clients in China. And we're excited about that. And again, you know, my job in stewarding this 153-year-old institution is to take a very, you know, a very, very long-term view. Um, much- and that's how we think about it when we're, when we're investing and in building there.
5: How much do you want to grow in China in the next five years? Uh, I, think
6: there's, I think there's a big opportunity. Um, we've put forward a five-year China plan. We haven't put the details of that five-year China plan out uh, publicly, but we run a relatively big business in China, although it's a very small part of overall Goldman Sachs. Our growth is correlated to where there's growth in the world, and there's certainly good growth in China. Um, Access to um, the wealth of individuals and wealth management platform, given our broad wealth management platform, is something that's very attractive to us. Corporate activity has been quite high there. Um, There's no question that that that's something that, that corporates there turn to our expertise in capital markets and advisory services. So I think there's a good opportunity set for us to prosecute over time.
5: How painful have these high energy prices been in customers in China, but elsewhere in the world? Well, I think there's
6: there's no question that we're going to go through a period where there's more inflationary pressure on commodities prices. And this goes back to why when we were talking about sustainability broadly, I said we have to balance good public policy you know, with the short-term implications, and that's why it's a transition. If we're too aggressive in the context of how we direct capital or the private sector, that can be more inflationary, and obviously that makes its way down to the end users, individuals, um, and the cost of their energy or their gasoline, et cetera, and there's a balance in that. If that goes too quickly, um, you know, that's, that's, something that, that's something that people are not going to be happy about. And for politicians, that'll be certainly something that they'll have to wrestle with.
5: But what do you say to a climate change activist that says, actually, we have the energy prices, but it's also a good excuse for big banks, big companies, big finance to d- delay the transition. So to go through a transition, but actually not as, be as aggressive in stopping, for example, funding some of the fossil fuel companies.
6: I, I, I think this is all a balance. And, you know, I've said clearly that Goldman Sachs, is going to be in a position where we're going to be doing business with fossil fuel companies and financing certain fossil fuel companies. But it's, it's a direction of transition. We want to be in business with people that are investing in their transition. We want good public policy. I said to you earlier, we have to put a price on carbon, in my opinion, because that will allow us to therefore accelerate the transition. But all of this is a balance. The, the most aggressive point of view on the transition and the least aggressive aren't right, it's a constructive partnership between governments and the private sector to make sure you know, we protect our society and get capital into technologies that can evolve and help us make the world greener. And I firmly believe that's something we can do, but it's something that's gonna require a lot of focus and a little bit of patience, but with appropriate intention and energy and commitment. Um, and we certainly have that.
5: What happens if COP26 is a failure? I, I don't see
6: it as—I as, as, don't see it as black and white as being a, you know, a, a, a failure. I know, you know, the prime minister was asked this morning, you know, what do you expect and what's a win. I think part of this, and I think this is one of the constructive things about being a part of the session here today, this global investment summit, and I know it will be the same with COP26. You need to create dialogue. People need to have debates. We have to be willing to debate, discuss, learn, and therefore make good policy decisions as we move forward. And this is all a constructive part of the process. So I, I see the fact that these dialogues are occurring, is pushing us forward. I think that's a very, very important part of the transition journey that we're on. Uh, but it's not, a, it's not a yes or no uh, to me that there's a win or a failure. This is going to be a process that we're all invested heavily in.
5: Thank you so much, David Solomon. I want to ask about your music, but we'll have to do it another time. Yeah, I don't know if there's I'm, anything I'm out. Really I'm
6: really, really happy to be with you and just happy to be back in London today.
5: Yeah, it's nice to have you back. With that, Thank we're you. going to send it back to you in New York.
0: Right now to the parlor game. Subrata Rajapa joins us, head of U.S. rates strategy at Sockgen. Thrilled we could get an update here. Subrata, how important is the adjustment in the Fed message? Do they have to catch up where the market is on maybe a slower growth and maybe a more controlled inflation?
7: Um, Not really. I think think that for the most part, you're, you're going to consistently hear the same message from all the Fed speakers that. Uh, they're probably going to be very careful and cautious on rate hikes um, because of the fact that they just don't have enough information on the inflation front for them to sort of guide the markets towards rate hikes. And that's why I think you're seeing a little bit of an adjustment in the in the two-year part of the curve this morning. Uh, we did see the market fully priced in three hikes by the end of 2023. And now you're going to see a little bit of, of adjustment yeah. based on what the Fed's uh, saying.
0: Equities are on a tear What does that signal to you in an overarching strategy and particularly in fixed income?
7: Well, I think that low yields are here to stay. As long as yields are are low, real yields remain low, then you have to go out the risk spectrum and invest in higher yielding assets. So if you look at the bond market complex, whether it be high yield or or, uh, treasuries on the other end of the spectrum your real returns are very, very low. I mean, in, in treasuries, you're getting negative 90 basis points. So it just doesn't make any sense to be in bonds and you're better off investing out the risk spectrum. And that's why you're seeing more and more demand, if you will, for risky assets, as well as uh, corporate bonds and high yielding bonds an environment where treasury yields are going to potentially remain low for the foreseeable future.
4: Subhadra, I want to sit on the Federal Reserve for a minute. The idea here that they inevitably will push back on some of the right rate hiking expectations that are being built into markets would they embrace this i mean markets are still chugging along even as traders price in two rate hikes don't they want to propagate that because it gives them frankly more ammunition down the line to either ease without even moving the rate just by verbal intervention or down the line it does leave them the ability to cut because rates will not be
7: at zero um so i think the way i would look at it is i think monetary policy especially rate hikes is a very blunt tool in this environment right You're looking at a very unusual inflationary environment that's driven by supply chain disruptions and labor shortages, uh, you know, higher rents. You know, the, the Fed can't really meaningfully do anything by raising rates to sort of uh, fix the inflation problem that we're going through right now. So I think the best course of action for the Fed is to remain patient until it really, really needs to raise rates. So that's why I think they're going to err on the side of the caution because they know they can pivot easily to guiding the markets towards rate hikes if they need to. If they do it now, then what you're going to see is, is this sort of price action you're seeing in the bond market, where the bond market thinks that the Fed is going to be able to raise rates soon Sooner, faster, kind of front load the rate hikes, if you will, which would imply a much slower trajectory for growth over the longer run. And that's causing this extreme flattening of the curve. They don't really want that either. Uh, Steepening of the curve is is healthy for a variety of the sectors of the economy. So they they just aren't, they shouldn't really be in a rush, if you will, to sort of guide the markets towards rate hikes. There's also the idea of political risk,
4: that this is the uh, perhaps view of the Federal Reserve as it is composed today. Yet we really haven't heard from President Biden in terms of replacing Fed Chair Jay Powell. An increasing question, if you look at predicted, the odds have actually been going down. What's your view of the uh, of the potential market risk of turmoil at the top of the Fed?
7: Um, yes, there's there's more uncertainty now than there was probably in a few weeks back about who's going to be chairing the Fed and what the composition of the committee is going to be next year. But broadly speaking, I think that. Regardless of the choices that are made, I think, you know, any most presidents want a very dovish Fed. They want policy to be accommodative so that, you know, uh, invest so that they see robust growth trajectory and the labor market is strong and inflation is not a concern. So I think broadly speaking, you know, the composition is going to remain somewhat dovish. Even if there are new choices made for the chair as well as some of the committee members, so I'm, I'm, I think that policy, especially with the Fed, tends to be somewhat stable. Uh, so I think that they, that I'm just, I'm not nearly as concerned about the the change in leadership, if you will.
0: What? How does this devolve into the equity market? I know it's off your remit, but the gloom crew, Sabadra, has been absolutely crushed. In the last 10 days how do you adapt to that how does it change your perspective
7: um you know by by gloom crew you mean the people that are that, are, that expect the equity market the narratives turn this over? fear,
0: that fear whatever the fears are in bonds yeah. or stocks they've been they've been obliterated
7: you know it's interesting because it has happened within the context of the bond market being concerned about very you know, higher trajectory to inflation, the bond market being concerned about the Fed raising rates. So the equity market, for the most part, is dismissing all the signals that, that the bond market's sending on the fact that the front end yields have gone up with a faster pace of rate hikes. There's probably a, a, you know, a potential slowdown in growth. So I think the equity market is going to wait. I mean, I'm not an equity strategist, but I think that Really, the, the the signal that I'm getting from the uh, the equity market is that they want to see uh, and hear from the Fed before they start pricing in sort of this this doomsday scenario. And the bond market always tends to lead, if you will, in some respects. So the signal from the bond market is going to be very key for all the other uh, risky assets.
1: Sabadra, you are perfectly entitled to talk about the equity market since equity strategists have spent the whole of this year pretending to be bond market strategists <laughs> pretty much yeah. all of this year. Sabadra, thank you, as always. Zubadra Jampa there of SOCGen.
0: On radio out of New York and, of course, Boston, Washington, San Francisco, and all across this nation and truly around the world, we say good morning. And on radio and TV, it's about, okay, now what? Brett Schutte is chief investment officer, okay, now what, at the Northwestern Mutual Company. Brett, what is the mood of your institutional and retail clientele that's worried, cautious, or flat-out scared?
8: Yeah, we think there's been worries in the markets about mid-May. So if you think back then, everything was going well in this country. Everything that we had tried to do over the prior year was kind of coming to fruition. So we had rising vaccination, declining COVID cases, and economic growth was strong. And I think people sat around and wondered what could go wrong. And so you had to worry about too much. Think the inflation commentary that we still have today and what would the Fed do? You had the too little crowd, China, Evergrande, would the economy roll over? And then valuations, our stocks, too strong? Have they rallied too much? And we think that's really driven trading over the past few months. And we think that as you move towards the end of the year, investors will refocus on economic and earnings fundamentals, which will push stocks higher. Uh, And I think that's what you're seeing right now. Earnings are coming in strong. The economy is still strong. Certainly there has been a weak patch because of COVID, but I think that alleviates. And I think you're left with an economy that's moving higher, earnings that are strong, and a 10-year treasury still setting around 160. Where are you going to put your money? How important is that 160 piece in all of this? It's important. I mean, if you think right now, I find the narrative kind of odd when people come on worried about inflation, saying the Fed's going to do nothing, uh, and then they tell you to invest in bonds. Uh, to me, I still think there's re- plenty of room in equities, I think especially in the more cyclical areas, which I think we've all given up on after a brief six-month rally in those versus things like the Apple $19 cloth that you were talking about. Yeah. I think the here and now <laughs> in oil and places like that is where you want to invest. Uh, more so than the secular growers like you just mentioned
1: i've been asking guests over the last week brent what are the pillars of support that will persist we can lean on through next year as well not just into year-end blackrock gave me two. they said pent-up demand that will persist and pricing power do you share that view brent
8: i do if you look right now for example on the consumer side of the equation the consumer has spent the prior 13 years deleveraging their balance sheet their debt to net worth has gone from 24 to 12. the cost of that debt has gone from 18 to 12. And so the consumer's healthy, they have pent up demand, uh, and I think you're gonna continue to see spending. The question is gonna be on these supply chains, can those snarls uh, kind of alleviate a bit? And I think they will as you move into the new year. And so I I think you have a setup where equities continue to push higher. There certainly are risks, and I don't expect the same push that you had post COVID. But I think on a relative basis, stocks are still attractive relative to bonds, just given the economic outlook and where the Fed is.
4: Brent, when you were saying that there is a lot of pessimism in markets, where are you seeing that pessimism?
8: Yeah, for example, just the uh, full, full client visits, I, the, the questions that I get are not what could go right, it's what could go wrong. And that's kind of a continual question that I get all the time because things have gone fairly well. Um, but if you look at the AI, AAII bullish sentiment survey, it peaked around May. We kind of had all the meme stocks moving higher. We had people trading on a daily basis. We had optimism actually go above 50, which is kind of rare air during the past 13 years. Uh, and it spent the next three or four months falling to I believe 22 in September. It's starting to rise a bit again. And I think people are going to get warmed up to the fact that the economy is still pushing along. And that typically pulls markets with it. And I don't expect this time to be any different.
4: When you talk to clients and they hear from asset manager after asset manager, it's a stock pickers market. What do you tell them? Do you say, look, the index is doing pretty well. It's supported by a number of different pillars. Or do you say, yeah, you should be very selective or you should just pay very big fees to somebody to invest your money on a stock uh, level?
8: We attempt to pull both levers. So (laughs) we attempt to add value through security selection and asset allocation. So we are overweighted small caps, for example. Uh, And we certainly do try to tilt our portfolio towards those cyclical names uh, that I mentioned kind of in my opening comments. Brent, always fantastic to catch up with you,
1: sir. Very calm and constructive on the outlook. Brent Schutte there of Northwestern Mutual.
0: This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening.